0: again, and welcome uh, once again to our HRA Conversations, Uh, and we're talking about having the difficult conversations. Today we'll be talking about racial inequality, uh, which I believe is is one of the more difficult conversations to have, especially in this climate. My name is Senior Master Sergeant Lashawna Hayner, and we are going to go around the table and allow everyone to introduce themselves. We'll start off
1: to my right. Uh, Good morning. Uh, My name is uh, Chief Master Sergeant Ng. I am with the 102nd uh, Intel Wing, 101st Intelligence Squadron, former human resource advisor here.
2: Thank you, Chief. Uh, My name is Major Eric Anker. I am the Director of Equal Opportunity for the 102nd Intelligence Wing.
3: Hi, I'm Colonel Melinda Sutton. I'm the Chief of Aerospace Medicine here at Otis Air National Guard Air Base.
0: Welcome. Thank you, all of you, for coming back to our table. Thank you. Um, we had a wonderful conversation the last time. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard the last conversation, I do um, invite you to listen to that conversation. So today today we're going to um, continue that topic of difficult conversations. <laughs> um, this is going to be a multi-part series uh, there will be two more parts after this, so I invite you to listen to those as well as they are posted. A couple of things first before we get started on our conversation today. I just want to remind people that this is not meant to be a checkbox kind of situation where we, the things we say absolutely do it exactly as we suggest. You need to make it your own. Uh, and, and adjust for your environment and the conversations you're going to have. Uh, keep in mind that our experiences are not necessarily the experiences of people you're going to have conversations with. So without further ado, let's, let's get started on our conversations, shall we? Let's do it. So uh, first question I have for everybody is um, in this climate, how do you, because it's defined so many different ways, how do you define racial in- inequality? Because let's, let's first kind of make sure we're all talking the same thing uh, and defining it and speaking to it in the same way. Uh, we'll start with you, Major Anchor. Oh,
2: thank you. I think I look at racial inequality as sort of how rules and regulations and laws are applied differently. To different groups of people, so the the consequences for certain behaviors um, when a regulation or a law is enforced uh, seem to be having seem to be falling uh, differently on different groups of people um, throughout our country. So I, I look at racial there's there's all kinds of and you could talk about you know kind of social racial inequality, but I think that I try to stay focused on the way that whether we're talking you know, big laws of of our country or Air Force regulations, just the way that things are enforced. Because the laws read the same, right, on paper. But once human beings take control and put put their action into play in enforcing those laws, that is where biases come out, and that is where unfairness seems to be the most detrimental. Because we expect our laws that are written the same for everyone to be applied the same to everyone. And... Uh, when the consequences are not the same, leads to inequality.
0: Great. Thank you. Chief Fing.
2: Hey, good
1: morning. Uh, the way I look at uh, racial inequality is, um, I, I break down the two words. One is racial, one is inequality. The key thing that comes out at me is equality. Uh, just because I look different, I shouldn't be treated differently. Uh, everyone should be treated uh, equal. It doesn't matter what your color of your skin is, what your race is, what your background is, what your ethnicity. Um, it's got to be equal.
0: Okay, and so that equality. um, Before we move to Colonel Sutton for her response, when you speak of that equality um, versus equity, because I know you're you're in diversity uh, diversity and inclusion as the as a prior HRA, um, do you kind of see a distinguish between the two, or an impact of like not having that equity but having the perceived equality.
1: Um, I, I do sometimes. Um, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, I I shouldn't shouldn't be discounted because of what I look like. I I should have the same chances of succeeding my my career and in basically anything I do, just because based on who I am, not because of what I look like.
0: Great, thank you, You're welcome. ma'am, Colonel Sutton.
3: Um, my perception or understanding of racial inequality is that given the same circumstances, given the same uh, environment, the outcomes are not equitable based on race or sex. And, you know, for instance, someone with the same degree, the same or very, very similar experiences, when you put their resume up for a job, Someone may extrapolate certain things about them based on their name or their perception. This name sounds ethnic, so I'm not sure that this person will fit here. So that's, an, that's a racial inequality. You're making an assumption about somebody before you've even met them, given they've got the same qualification as this other person, with some minor nuances. So, you know, things like that. Um, just inequality based on the basis of race.
2: You know, man, that reminds me of a a, a report that I think was it was in the the early teens, um, maybe 2012, that was I think uh, a university somewhere in Illinois that sent out identical resumes, like thousands of identical resumes out across the country, and some of them were uh, the name like John Smith, very like generic kind of like white names, and then names like Tamika. Uh, or Jamal very very uh, black sounding names, and the white sounding names got seventy percent more callbacks with the exact same resume so when people talk about you know hiring the best person and that kind of thing it's these, these biases are still at play, even when we 're trying to be as objective as we possibly can, and when we see it all uh, accumulated like that, then it really becomes quite stark uh, the difference in how people uh, people of different cultural backgrounds.
3: I do want to add one thing. Sometimes the bias is intended well. It's it's meant for good. Like if you have a program that's targeted for uh, low-income Hispanic individuals in an inner city, you might want to hire Enrique as opposed to Eric because they're thinking maybe Enrique can relate to them better and inspire them. So it's well-intentioned. Mm-hmm. But it may not necessarily be true. Fair. So, I mean, so that's one reason I think some people do it. They feel like, well, this person is more suited for this. And, but it still comes out the same. You didn't necessarily hire the best person. How do you know that Eric is not really someone whose parents were missionaries and they traveled all over the world and they really wanted to be in that uh, job? to give back and help because they don't want to travel the world anymore. They want to help people right here in this country. So I'll just offer that as a reason that some people do it. It's not all derogatory, and sometimes it's unconscious. Right. That's why
2: why we're having these conversations. It sounds similar to like an unconscious bias in a way. Mm -hmm. Right, ma'am. I think what you're indicating is that, yeah, in in some situations, I think right now we've sort of established a frame of hiring because I mentioned that that study. Sure, like if there's, there's if, 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 if engaging with a given community is part of the job description, just like in the military, if we have people that are going to be working uh, in a certain country mm-hmm. uh, or like in the State Department, people, someone's at an embassy, like having a language background that matches that country or that community certainly makes more sense. And somebody from that culture and that community is more likely to have the language background. But we still don't want to let first impressions, because that's what's so kind of silly about racism, sexism, all these isms, is that they're all based on first impressions. They're all judgments that are made in the first second of seeing somebody or hearing somebody. And we've all been taught from day one that you can't judge a book by its cover. And so that sort of wisdom goes out the window with these, with these isms and biases, because it, it all takes place kind of right at the start. And then from there, once somebody has established a bias against someone else or for someone else, it's pretty much in play for the rest of their interaction. And it's hard to, it's hard to back out of that, you know, people hate to be proven wrong, which is part of, uh, I think we're, we're, where I'm gonna head with this conversation about having conversations and the concept of being wrong, so.
0: Well, and along those lines, On the topic of racial inequality, um, there is, there is, we are where we come from. We are our experiences, right? And so over time, if we are constantly having a certain set of experiences based on our appearance, based on that initial perception of society on us, it's going to, it's going to form how we interact and how we react. And it's also going to form um, perceptions of, not, of, of society as well as ourselves. And so, racial inequality, I think, in some ways, gets to the heart of dealing with those outcomes, dealing with those, those perceptions that have been built, sometimes over a significant period of time, and sometimes uh, over a brief period of time, depending on our interactions. And so I think a little bit to, to hit back on, uh, ma'am, what you were saying about, like, you know, do you hire Eric or do you hire Enrique? There are some um, benefits at times to hiring Enrique because he's, he's familiar. He's familiar with, with, that, with that group of people, but that group of people is also familiar and can identify with him. And I, I think that's some of the things that um, we've seen in reports is that sometimes, because we have racial inequality, it prevents opportunities from people seeing themselves in, in esteemed positions. So for example, you have, um, if you have, like in our atmosphere, in our environment, if you have young airmen of color, females who are coming in and saying I want to aspire to be mm-hmm. and they don't see anybody who's already aspired. They don't see anybody who looks like them. The impact of racial inequality is taking a t- can, not always does, but can take a toll on the direction of their career. Because if I can't see somebody because nobody's ever been given a chance because they're judged immediately, and so therefore they're stopped from from aspiring to a rank, um, there's this domino and, ling- and long um, lingering effects. And so, like, when I walk through the hall and I see your picture, for example, on the wall, if I'm a young aspiring airman who is thinking about going the officer route, I can see, you know what, that's possible. And some of the... Um, racial inequalities I've dealt with over my life. I can see that there is something beyond that. So I think that's the other fact. Like that's a
2: great that's a great lead into privilege. Right. I mean, when I when I ha- as, as a white guy, when I look for jobs that I could have or roles that I could have, I mean, literally the sky is the limit. Outer space is the limit. You know, like um, there's plenty of examples of people who look like me having every single job in America. So when I'm told as a child that I can do anything, there's proof in the pudding because I look around and I see people who look like me literally doing anything. Um, When that sort of uh, phenomenon of of seeing people that look like us in in roles that that are um, successful, that's a privilege that I have. And so when someone tells me, when someone who looks different from me um, a, a person of color tells me that it's like you just said; it's difficult to imagine yourself in a role where there's no one who looks like you. My job is to believe you. That's because I can't. I can't. If I were to come back and say, "Oh, that doesn't matter," I'm being completely blind to my own privilege, and that's that's one of the main things about privilege is that we are blind to it. I mean. <clears throat> I don't want to disparage any group, but if I was going to, you know, we all have, we all probably know somebody who's like, was born super, super wealthy. And it sometimes seems like they just don't understand that, like, not everybody could get into that crazy, expensive private school that you went to. And they, 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 yeah, sure, they worked hard. Of course they worked hard, but they're, they had so many more doors open to them because of their wealth. Race doesn't necessarily have that much of an impact as far as opening doors, but as far as communicating possibilities, it does in America.
3: It's a it's a chain reaction. Uh, for instance, for malpractice, when something bad, there's a bad outcome, there was a series of, of bad events that happened, not recognizing an allergy, not uh, identifying the right body part to be operated on, um, not following up at the proper intervals for follow-up checkups, and things like that. So there's a series. With racial inequality, there's a series of things that culminate in people having a suboptimal quality of life because of things that are beyond their control. Whether you are black or white, if you have money wherever you live, life is a lot better Mm -hmm. because, yes, you work hard, but you work hard under different circumstances. It's like taking a ride in one vehicle that has air conditioning and one that doesn't. Same distance, same route, but by the time you arrive in that car that's not air-conditioned, you're tired, (laughs) you're frustrated, you're not feeling too friendly, warm, and fuzzy when you get there. You just want to go somewhere, get a shower, get something to eat, and sit down somewhere and be quiet. But if you've been in the air-conditioned vehicle, probably have Sirius XM, listening to comedy or whatever you want to listen to. Whereas the other vehicle may or may not have radio, and even if you did, you had to have all the windows open to cool you off to get there. And if you had leather seats, you're sticking to them. So it's just uncomfortable. So that's what I'm saying. You're, you're studying. You're preparing for life under uncomfortable circumstances. Shock's not working. Bumps in the road. You're riding in the lap of luxury in the other vehicle. So your ride is a lot more comfortable.
2: And in, the, in talking about racial inequality, that, that, dis, that uncomfortableness looks like not being part of the dominant group, looks like not being somebody who is de facto accepted into the society, looks like people who are in charge of you, be it bosses, be it police, be it any kind of law enforcement or regulation enforcer, not looking like you, which means that you don't look like them, which means you, you, you're not going to remind them of anyone that they know their compassion and empathy is going to be slightly turned down because they're they're going to look at you and they're going to see difference and something that that we talked about in the last episode was that difference is one of the first things that triggers our flight flight fight response is, is 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 difference triggers that fear and so that is something that people who don't look like the and this is true this isn't this is in America. We're talking about like white people as a dominant culture, but dominant cultures exist everywhere. Do. I was with uh, Colonel Sutton in, in Kenya, and there are definitely certain tribes in Kenya that you know the tribal affiliations are very important there. There are certain tribes that just have more privilege than other tribes, and there's certain physical characteristics that denote certain tribes. And those individuals that are from the tribes that have less privilege or are born into situations that have more complications and more stress Mm -hmm. struggle more. So we're going to talk about, you know, white and non-white in this podcast, but dominant culture is really sort of what we're actually talking about. And just when we bring it to America, it looks like white and non-white, but it can take shape in any country, in any place. Mm
0: -hmm. Great. Thank you. Great point, Major Anchor, thank you for that. Colonel Sutton, I wanted to kind of wrap back around to the point you were making about the analogy with the cars. Um, One of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking about that is the fact that racial inequality are those two different cars, how you get to where you're going. And so, and when the person gets out of the car, the headspace that they're in when they get out of that car, you know, you have that, the person who, who got there in the air conditioner and they're like, whoa, I feel refreshed, I'm ready to go. And then you have the person who kind of gets out of the the non-air conditioner car going, this was a struggle, I don't understand, why is this unfair? And sometimes they can tend to, they, they, they personify what they're feeling, right? You see how they're feeling in their and actions and attitudes.
2: That the person in the air conditioned car immediately ends up interacting with the person from the non-air-conditioner car, and they're like, "Oh, that person's just angry. It's just mad. They're just so they're just mad. hostile. They're so hostile. I don't see why they're so upset. And I why mean, are they so
3: sweaty? What's going yeah, on?" Yeah, yeah, right they're there?
2: sweaty. They're upset. like, "What's wrong? What's wrong with this person?" And it becomes a, um, yeah, it, it, it creates a conflict because there's a difference going on there where the person in the air-conditioned car doesn't realize that. And, and this is a, this is a, a thing about privileges is when you have privilege. I mentioned earlier the privilege is kind of invisible. It's only invisible to the people who have it. It's not invisible to the people who don't have it. It's right in their face. So the person in the unair-conditioned car, they know that they don't have air conditioning, and so and that the other person does. So they're like, the other. But the person with the air conditioning may not know that the other person doesn't have air conditioning. This is getting back and forth. I don't want to sound confusing, but I'm just saying that. Privilege is something that is hard to see when you have it. Let's point this out right now. We all have some privilege right now with our voices being heard. There's lots of people on this base who are not doing officially approved podcasts that are going to be blasted out to everyone. So that's the privilege that we have right now. So just we can acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. Acknowledging privileges takes practice.
0: So I'm going to sidestep for a moment because I, there's a wonderful person uh, who might even watch this podcast and is going to get a chuckle out of this. But, and I'm going to paraphrase it, so I'm not going to do it exactly as he does it, but when he explains privilege, he pulls out a bottle of water, he takes a sip, he says, think of this as privilege, okay? If you can turn on your faucet and let the water run without thinking about it, without thinking about this water might run out, um, the fact that you have a bottle of water that you could choose to, do, to drink from or you could choose to let it sit there, Right. You're not worried about where's where am I going to get my next sip of water from? Right. You're not thinking of not having it. It's, it's just always there. And so I think, you know, like I said, to paraphrase him, as he probably chuckle at this, think of that bottle of water as privilege. Everybody who can randomly go, you know, walk into their house and get a glass of water anytime they want. That is not necessarily everybody's story everybody's experience. There are some people, I think some of us more than others have traveled to places, Mm -hmm. you know, especially being in the military where that is not, that is not something you can stand firm on. Like it's just going to happen, right? You're going to just turn on the water faucet and water's going to flow. Or you're going to just go to your refrigerator. Not everybody has refrigerators even. And you're going to open up your refrigerator. You're going to get a nice glow, you know, cold glass of water. And so that's that privilege. I don't have to think about it. It is not, I don't even consider what it's not like to have it. It just is. Yeah. So speaking on privilege, you know, especially in this context of racial inequality, Chief, do you have Sure. To do I, did, I just
1: want to touch on that point, uh, Major Anker, you just brought up, about the, uh, everyone has privileges. I've never looked at it that way before, but not the way you explained it. I do see it now Um, Everyone does have privilege Uh, What my question is Is it wrong to use my privilege to my own advantage?
2: I think it depends on the privilege Okay And it depends on what the advantage is Say
1: Colonel Sutton brought up earlier When you go into a a job interview With the language or background difference I can use my privilege as an Asian background To
2: to, um, acquire an Asian position Is that wrong
1: for me to use my privilege that
2: way? no i wouldn't say I wouldn't say because well that fall in qualification well, privilege is contextual right so so that so when you walk into a job interview that's like we said before with uh the a job that's needs somebody who's familiar with a certain kind of culture um, that then you yeah, you have some privilege walking into that space, but as a non white person, your general racial privilege disappears the second you're not in that interview right so that's kind of the nuance of privilege takes different shapes and different forms you know so we all have privilege in the military if we're in a town that has a base there's going to be military discounts around sure we can use that privilege if we go to another town there where there's not a base and people aren't familiar with the military as much there's probably not going to be military discounts and then we don't get that privilege so does the privilege we can't help but use our privileges right. sometimes. Even the wealthy kid, even the billionaire kid, can't help but have that privilege. So whether or not we use privileges and versus having those are two completely different conversations to if I have money to bribe the job interviewer, because I have money to use my privilege that way so that I get the job when I'm not qualified, but I'm paying for it, no, that's not ethical. Of right. course not. But if the job is looking for somebody with your background, and now you have that privilege, then that makes total sense. So, so before, before we can analyze a privilege in the context that it's at play in, we have to acknowledge it. And I think that's where we are right now, is just acknowledging privileges. And then once we acknowledge them, we can talk about whether or not it's ethical to use them or not. I mean, I, you know, being an officer, you get privileges. Sometimes you have to use your authority to get the job done you're expected to use that privilege, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but as an officer, if I'm just having a bad mood and somebody looks at me the wrong way who's enlisted, for me to make them give me 20 on the sidewalk mm-hmm. is not ethical. So it's about how we use our privilege, where we use our privilege, and what privilege that we're using. So, But like I said before, we can have those conversations or to analyze that. We have to acknowledge, acknowledge the privileges, and, and it's, it's, hard. it's hard work just by itself to acknowledge them.
0: Right, and I think... on on that topic it's how you use your privilege right so first you got to acknowledge that you have privilege that's a non-starter if you don't acknowledge that you have privilege then you can't talk about how to use the privilege or when you've used your privilege incorrectly because you're not acknowledging that you have privilege the other thing is I think in the context of racial inequality we really are challenging people to use their privilege to bring racial equality, okay? So what I mean by that is, you know, if you're in a room and you're a major, you're a white male major in a room and everybody looks like you, be that voice to say, wait a minute, time out. Because you have the privilege to be in the room in the first place and say, you know, we all kind of look alike here, right? There's somebody missing from this picture. That, I think, is using your privilege in the right... It's using your privilege because you're in the room in the first place, but it's applying your privilege in a way to effectively bring change and possibly racial equality.
2: And that's, what, that's exactly what I was alluding to when I said it's two different conversations because whether or not we use anything for anything is an ethical conversation, is, it, is, an, is an ethical situation. So, like, let's look at, like, a gun, a gun is essentially a tool of death. It, to, if I were to ask, is it, is it ethical or right to use a gun? Well, that enti- it depends entirely on what you're doing it's with it, where you're work. doing it with who's around like whatever's going on. So the same goes for privilege. So privilege is, privilege is a neutral thing that can be applied positively, or you, you can help with your privilege, or you can hurt with your privilege. So the, the, the answer to is it okay to use our privilege is, Yes and no. It depends on what we're it right. depends on what we're doing. It's, it's a tool. So I guess to come back around, if I was
1: if, uh, say, in you, if you were to see me to come in to, to use my Asian privilege, are you automatically gonna say, oh, he's going to get the job because he's Asian? Or do you? I wouldn't feel say... like I have some type of privilege over you.
2: it, it, would, it would really depend on the situation. Again, I mm-hmm. mean, if there's, a, why am I applying for a job as myself? that is specifically looking for someone who's Asian. That doesn't even make sense. So I would. Well,
1: it goes back to, I think, you brought up a point. If you were going to say you're, you're educated in, in that background, that's because you're an American that does not mean that. What if you grew up, in, say, in China? Your, your parents were, were stationed in the embassy or with the military or something like that.
3: That's an excellent point. And the way you brought that up, if you are applying for a job in Chinatown, they would probably expect most of the applicants to be of Asian descent. Now, if my cousin applies, they might be like, why is this person whose right. last name is Battle applying? Well, my cousin speaks fluent Chinese. He's been learning ever since he was 13 and was invited to China to learn. And because of COVID, he's not able to go back. But that might be a pleasant surprise if they give him an interview and he can conduct it in complete fluent Chinese. So, you know what I mean? It, it just, right, your, your statement, um, major anchor about the situation is is quite appropriate because we have a whole bunch of different situations. For instance, with the college cheating scandal, um, it's understood that if you have money or every parent is going to do the best they can for their child. If you have money, you can go and get your child assessed and find out, okay, what is their academic strength? What is their weakness? You can hire tutors to help get them ready for the SAT, the ACT, and all these things. That's a an appropriate way to use your privilege. Right. That way, they go and apply and get in wherever they are based on their merits. But what they did was inappropriately apply their privilege to pay $500,000. I'm misquoting. I don't know how much they paid <laughs> um, to get them into school as people that were on athletic teams that they didn't even perform that athletic skill. So that's an inappropriate application of their privilege of money because that disparaged other folks who worked their tail off to get the scores to get in. And they were denied a spot based on that person being put in. Well, I don't know if they were denied that, let me correct that. Um, but in a, any, any event, their privilege was applied inappropriately to get their, what they wanted, which was getting their kid into a higher echelon school. And it wasn't based on merit or their, their skills.
2: Right. I think there's a, a, there's a conversational, so I have, I have a background in, in what we call Big D Dialogue, mm-hmm. which, is, which is sort of uh, conversational dynamics. I'm not, I'm not a master and expert in it, but I have some experience with it. And I, I see an opportunity here to, to mention a conversational um, thing that can happen. And, and it's, it's okay. It's, again, it's like privilege. It's like a neutral thing. Um, but we should acknowledge it. And that thing is called, and feel free to Google this and, and see, see what, uh, how you interpret it, but it's called whataboutism. Whataboutism is great for exploring options and trying to figure out planning. Whataboutism is great. We do it in the military all the time. What if this, what if, you know, discussing limb facts and what, what if this happens? What if that happens? When we're talking about ethical situations, and things like fairness and equality, problems that we have clearly not solved, even in the military. I, I assume eventually this, this report that came out that the, the Air Force admits persistent and consistent bias against black airmen. That's it's on CBS, there's a report, the Air Force admitted it, so we don't have to dance around it. When we're trying to solve real problems, it's often more productive to stay in the problem itself before we start expanding into what about is what what about this what about that is sort of like inventing situations that we don't have any actual experience with so just to just to I just want to point out that what aboutism can it changes the frame of a conversation are we talking about what's happening or are we or are we dissecting Possibilities based on our creative imaginations. So I just want to just mm-hmm. just note that you can note that in, in a, a conversation, That's a conversational thing that that, that takes place. It's great in philosophy. I teach philosophy, and what about philosophy is all about? What aboutism? Um, but when we're trying to solve problems on the ground, it can it can kind of distract us.
0: Right, and and so you know, along those lines, to kind of help move the conversation forward. Um, So, yes, with racial inequality, there's definitely this aspect that you can't ignore, that, you know, that privilege piece. Um, But what I kind of want to pull back and and revisit is the impact or um, if we don't start the conversations, the difficult conversations about racial inequality, kind of what those should look like. Um, so, for example, I've had some conversations with, with people, Caucasians primarily, um, who, when we start talking about racial inequality, they immediately get defensive, and it becomes not a discussion, but a debate. I say left, they say right. Um, and I think one of the key... Variables, if you're going, is, is first decide, am I going to have a conversation or am I going to have a debate? Um, are we not going to really listen to each other and we're going to just talk at each other? Or are we going to be open-minded and consider that this person may have some valid points based on the experiences they have had? Right. Right. I sometimes when I'm having conversations, I use the example of if I have, when I'm having a conversation and and, and I'm trying to expose somebody to my experience that I've had. um, If I say to five different people, what color is the sky? Somebody might say sky blue, somebody might say baby blue, somebody will say just blue. It's all based on perspective, right? Nobody's really wrong. Nobody's going to come out and go, "No, it's not sky blue. It's not baby blue. It's um, it's gray. <laughs> it's gray." Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but and we don't argue over that. Usually, it's like you know what? I could see how you might say it, you know. And, and if you're if if you're having a conversation with a scientist, that gets even more interesting because you know then they'll really kind of go out there with. With, their, with the context of what color the sky is, but I think it's based on your experiences. And so the same way we kind of approach that conversation, approaching the conversation on um, race, you kind of have to have that same open-mindedness, right? So what's your, what's your thoughts, Colonel, on that? Like just that open-mindedness and we have to have the conversation and it can be difficult.
3: Yes. Everybody has to be receptive to someone's uh, perspective. Uh, You can all look at the same block, as you said, and depending on the lighting from your perspective, it is going to be light blue. And from the perspective of another person, the blue may be a shade darker, or it may be cobalt, but it's all blue. So varying shades based on the lighting and what have you. Um, You have to be open to the fact that Many people are just oblivious to what your experiences have been. If you grew up in a certain area, you're in a cocoon. You're in a cocoon of your what's normal to you. The the racial mix, the gender mix, even the occupational mix, depend on where you are. If you're in an urban area, it may be more, more industrial. It may be more uh, hourly wage earners. If you live in the suburbs, those individuals and their earning may be more uh, conceptual, uh, administrative, business, corporate, and the schools may be different. So the mix of people is different. So your exposure to different cultures. For instance, in Queens, New York, you have a, a big mix of people. You have uh, Caribbean island folks. You have Asian Americans. You have uh, Hispanic. You have a lot of Italian, and. That mix in the schools makes you exposed to different cultures, like why some people miss certain days of school if they're Jewish because it's for their Jewish holidays. If they're Catholic, they might miss for a confirmation or something that's happening because you have some of everybody in those neighborhoods. Then you go to Brooklyn and, and what's that road? It's where there's all Caribbean islanders. When it's time for the Caribbean festival, everybody shuts down, everybody... You know, don't come and try to do any business. Everybody already knows. It's just not happening on that weekend when they're having the big parade and the celebration. So if you're from a multicultural, diverse area, you it's not new to you to hear the different accents. But if you come from an area where there just isn't that much, then you think everybody has what they need, has food, has clothing, and is privileged. And you consider somebody underprivileged, that's in those commercials where they have care for the children and donate the money because they're starving. They don't have wells for water. So you're like, wow, that's terrible. That doesn't happen here in America.
0: So Colonel Sutton, um, you know, that community that you were talking about that was very diverse, um, all sorts of, you know, backgrounds and the fact that they, um, the community was receptive to kind of closing down for, for one group celebration. Um, even in that community, you know, did you see um, some examples of an inequality? And if so, kind of how was it handled? How do you, because that's part of this conversation, right, is is how do we have the difficult conversations, but then what next?
3: Yes, there were some inequalities. You can see it in uh, how people are steered towards housing because they, f- they believe that, well, You're coming here, so you should live near somebody else that looks like you, which can be good, cannot be good with regard to child care and just a sense of community. But what I did see to get around that is, you know, infusing different community groups, like for the children, Girl Scouts, uh, Boy Scouts. I'm not sure if they still have Boy Scouts, but they might have, um, you know, other groups, uh, big big boys, big sisters and brothers of America, like a community club where they can go and everybody's mingling in the same community. And um, they all had spokespersons from their different groups that would get together to try to get people to mingle. And then also asking instead of assuming. Don't assume someone knows that there's a a literacy program at the high school in the evening because you still have quite a few people who can't read and English is not their first language, or even if they speak, they speak a Patois. They speak a Haitian Patois or Jamaican Patois, and how to help clean up their dialogue so that they're understood. Because you may be speaking intelligently about a problem, but it doesn't help you if somebody doesn't understand you. So it is on you, to a certain extent, to make yourself understood. So make them aware of what community resources are available, because you're all paying taxes to the same pot and should benefit from it. If you don't have a SAT book or need tutoring, go to the library. They have public libraries. Get a library card. Many of those librarians are willing to help you. Even if you speak another language, they will find a way because there is Google translation. There's translators on the phone. So asking people if they're aware of certain resources and not assuming that they know and that's why they didn't apply. That's why they didn't come for this because sometimes it's out there but only a certain group of people knows about it. So they're the ones who keep benefiting over and over again. They're the ones that keep applying for things that are out there. And then the folks that put it out are saying, we never get any um, Hispanics applying for this. We never get any African-Americans applying for that. We don't get any um, Asians applying. They didn't know, you know, and that's a big problem. But the way that I see people getting around it is trying to make it more Um, the information more aware, putting it in the community newspapers. If they know there's an underground paper somewhere, they come and submit it. Hey, we're having free screening for this condition here, free assistance with doing your taxes, free assistance for applying for scholarships and things that are available. So I think that's the other way around it. And breaking down barriers. When kids get together, often parents will get together because they'll come back, oh, I want to go and play at Shamika's house. Shamika's house? Who are they? Who are those people? And that's a reasonable thing. No matter who they are, every parent wants to know who their child is hanging out with. So that breaks down barriers. They come over timid at first. They're like, come on in. Have a seat. They're playing in the back. Why don't you just stay here? By the time you get back across town, they'll be done. You have to come back anyway. Just have a seat, and we can just talk and get to know each other. So it starts in those stages, and I see that. Because when you go to Coney Island, you see more mixed groups of kids going together as a group, hanging out, and not just a group of Russian kids, because you can hear them all talking Russian, and not just a group of Vietnamese kids. Everybody's going together as a group and having a great time and and grabbing each other's like, hey, you're my friend. I thought we were riding the ride together. You you know, so it's getting better, but it's because of the conversations in girl scouts the conversations in the boys and the girls clubs that's getting the parents together and realizing hey maybe my thoughts weren't quite right but they don't have to say it they can just acknowledge it through their actions and through being more accepting and then when they're in the room and the conversation comes up oh, those people wait a minute those people who are you talking about That you dealt with one person and you're going to take the act of one person, your interaction with one person and color a whole group by that? That's not necessarily so. So that's where I think we are going and hopefully we can get more of those uncomfortable conversations to start a little bit like that with people just opening their mind that, hey, there's a possibility that my thinking was not quite right.
0: Great, thank you. So you've hit on a lot of things. Oh, so much. I want to touch. Yeah, (laughs) thank you. So um, a couple of things like that I picked up personally was um, A, asking. (laughs) It's really easy and we do it for such simple things but when don't do it for the difficult things. Uh, Some of the things we go back to are unconscious biases or what we believe or what we've grown up with um, about certain groups. So, you know, just like I can ask you, do you prefer ketchup or mustard? I can, I can have other conversations with you about your preferences to get to know you. So I, the asking, but also open mindedness, and realizing that an interaction with one person is not your interaction with all people who look like that one person. I think that's an, that's another important point. And then the last point, which is something I had kind of um, mentioned or brought up earlier, and when I was uh, speaking on something major anchor has said is look around the room and see who you don't have as a part of your group. Right. Mm -hmm. If I look around the room and I don't see men or I don't see, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. And I know that there's people around me who do look like them. Why aren't they in my room with me? Why aren't they a part of my conversation? Um, so I think that's also a very important thing, and I think that's the way we kind of start moving forward on moving the needle with racial inequality. Because everybody needs to be at the table to have the conversation, right? You're not going to impact change if you're trying to impact change for for a specific group of people if they're not at the table, so they can tell you this is the change I need, right? Helping giving help to somebody with help that they don't really that really won't benefit them. Um. But also being open-minded in that conversation around that round table, once you bring those people in, whoever that person is that doesn't look like your group, and giving them a voice, like not just saying you're at the table, but we want to hear what you have to say. And, and we're going to, the other, the, the other thing I like that you pointed out was take action on, not just hear, not just have a conversation, but what action am I going to follow that up with to move to move that needle.
3: Right. Let them tell you what the barriers are. I said I didn't know I could be in that room. You know, we yes. don't have a library or we don't have public transportation. You have to walk 3 miles to get to the closest train, the closest bus. And sometimes that makes people very uh, insular i 'm not trying to sure what the word is that 's why some people don 't get out of their square block range of where they live it 's just very inconvenient based on weather and inconsistent because if the weather is good and they can walk that three miles they 'll go but then when the winter comes or the extremes, then that 's inconsistent, so they need to have stuff closer to them because for instance, look at the inequities not excuse me not inequity, but the inequality in In dietary things that are available. Their diet does not include a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables because they can't get to it. The big change was when they had the farmer's markets and they brought them into the communities. Then the diet and the health changed considerably because they could get fresher produce and it was within walking distance. So they need to be able to uh, express the barriers to them getting to those different positions and options.
0: right. Chief, um,
1: any thoughts on that? that? That was a lot. I know. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that is a lot. I mean, it, they're all good points. Um, I can totally understand where Colonel car- car- is coming from with the, uh, the fresh fruit markets. The, you you have to get get the produce to the people. Not they can't always get to Mm-mm. what they need. Um, I guess that's what we're looking at. Uh, is that a privilege or is that not a privilege? That's just going back and forth. Uh, um, yes, they may not have the privilege. Accessing the uh, the stuff they need for the diet, and and they see that you you get that stuff, you have a privilege, so I, I'm gonna have to play catch up. Um, the way I look at that is maybe making the best of what I have, um, use it to my my uh, my best ability to to make the situation work for me.
2: Um, that was so much good juice. I've got. Some things I'm going to hit on for a second, mm-hmm. if that's okay. Um, I was going to kind of jump into, kind of just sidestep a little bit into, into, into conversations and, and how to do conversations. Cause this is, um, the, the pod, yeah, so anyways, um, <laughs> I just, yeah, uh, when having difficult conversations, when we go – all right, so when we go to the gym, right, we're all in the military, we work out. If I go into the gym and I go, you know what, I'm strong enough, what am I going to do? I'm going to walk – I'm going to turn around and leave the gym. We go to the gym to get stronger, and that going to the gym has an assumption or an admission, if I, if I, if I may – that I'm not strong enough. I need to get stronger. I need to get faster. I need to increase my VO2 max. I'm not there yet is the attitude we have when we go to the gym. And we don't seem to have a problem admitting that in the gym. We do seem to have a problem admitting that in a conversation. I'm not there yet. Admitting or or just entertaining the possibility that I'm not there yet in a conversation, which may come across as being quote-unquote wrong, is, how we, is actually how we strengthen our arguments. If, I'm trying, if I want to get a, a point across, the best thing I can do is come into that conversation with the assumption that I don't know everything, that I could be wrong. Because if I, know, if I think that I could be wrong, I'm going to listen. And I'm going to actually, if somebody says something where I'm like, oh, that's just wrong and, I, and I'm right here. I'm shutting it down. I'm not exploring it in my own mind, in my own series of of talking points or whatever. But if I listen and I say, oh, I might be wrong here, I'm gonna I'm gonna take time. Good conversations are slow, by the way. Good conversations are slow, say that again. I'm gonna take the time to bounce whatever that other person said off all of my different points. Are they am I am I wrong here? Am I wrong? And I'm going to check it against this. 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 And then I will figure out where my arguments are containing fluff and BS and where my arguments actually have really strong – and where I'm just not wrong. I'm just not wrong. Look, I've I've listened to you. I've considered you and what you've said. I've entertained the possibility that you're totally right in this situation. And I'm sorry, there's just some information that I have that – that, that, push, that pushes back up against what you're saying. So since I've listened to you now, now I would hope that you would listen to me with the possibility that maybe I, maybe you're not there yet, just like in the gym. So that's, entertaining the possibility that we could be wrong is how we actually strengthen our arguments just like how we strengthen our bodies. Um, another practice in critical thinking is the idea of entertaining true truths. And this, this, this destroys binary thinking. Binary thinking is anti- antithesis to critical thinking because it tries to categorize everything as right, wrong, black, white. There's no middle space. And human beings, our brains, are the most complex things in existence, right? And so when we get multiple human brains together, we're talking about the most complex phenomenon that can exist. So it, there's no way that it is going to fit easily into two separate categories. So when I try to maintain two, even two opposing truths, such as there is no such thing as racial inequality. There is such a thing as racial inequality. If I set those things down next to each other, I'm going to go, okay, well this argument that there is no racial inequality is clearly coming back. Okay. So back to the sky, like you brought up Sergeant hanner the sky is blue. Somebody says, no, the sky is orange. If I go, that's just ridiculous. I've shut down my ability to learn. But if I go, okay, so maybe that's true that the sky is orange to you. Well, Maybe you're from Los Angeles, where it's super hazy, and the sky is orange. Maybe somebody comes into the conversation and goes, you know what? Actually, the sky is black. And I go, no, this, oh, wait a minute. At, at night, the sky is black. And once we get out past our atmosphere, the sky, outer space, is black. So, so what do you mean by sky? Which takes me to my last point. I'm almost done. I'm so sorry. But one thing that can derail conversations is getting into deb- debates about semantics, right? What does that mean? What does this mean? In critical thinking, we try to push the idea that words don't have meanings, they have uses. The word sky, what do you mean by sky? Do you mean outer space or do you mean our atmosphere? What do you mean by um, the word court? Do you mean like a sports court? Do you mean like a court of law? Do you mean like courting, like you're trying to date somebody, Court, courtmanship? Um, words have different uses. So when I, if I'm going to listen to somebody, if I feel like they're using a word incorrectly in my mind... Rather than saying, you're not using the word right, let's get on Google and go to the dictionary and figure it out. The more productive thing and the more critical thinking thing is to say, how are you using that word? And then they clarify, and then we talk about the juice inside that usage of that word rather than getting into a, I'm right, you're wrong about the meaning of a word. Now the conversation's derailed. So moving forward, understanding that people use words in different ways and that words do actually have multiple meanings getting that clarification is one way to keep a conversation going and not turn into a debate about that just ends in a dictionary and that's no fun.
0: No, thank you. Thank you. Um, and all of this has been great. I think we've had a wonderful conversation as we're about to wrap up. Uh, one of the things I'd like to do is just kind of go around the table and ask just for a quick, quick, short, um, takeaway, uh, because having the conversation opens us up. So if there's anything you've learned from this conversation, really quick, like just one statement, one sentence, um, that you've either learned from this conversation or that you plan on taking into future conversations, something that you plan on taking into future conversations on on the topic. We'll start with you, Colonel Sutton.
3: Uh, We have a lot of work to do, uh, but it's definitely doable with all the tools we have now with all the technology, and I think we just need to make it more clear to people that this is something that's real and needs to be acknowledged, and it's gonna to touch your life, and it's, it's costing us all the longer that we take to push it off and try to cover it up. So um, it's
1: here, we need to own it, and we need to address it.
0: Great, Chief Eng.
1: Uh Yes, uh, difficult conversation is, it's hard. I mean, the word is right there, uh, especially when we're talking about racial issues. Uh, but there is no better time to start that conversation than is the now. Now it, it's more crucial than any based on uh, recent events uh, that was brought up. Great, and Thank we you. have to walk into that with open-mindedness, like you said. Uh, have a conversation, not a debate. Uh, don't get into an argument. We want to hear all sides. We want to hear. We want to know how our our members or our airmen are. Uh, uh, feel about where they're at.
2: Exactly. And make, 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 it, make things better.
0: Great. And Major Anchor. I
2: guess, I guess if, if I wanted anyone to, to walk away with something about how to have conversations, especially when we're having them in the military with our colleagues, with our military family, is slow down. Just Just slow down your conversations. Take time, because that will make it easier to listen, make it easier to think, and... Actually, slowing down a conversation is a way to kind of take control of it. When you slow down the conversation, it makes people have to tune in and listen a little bit more and gives you the time to put your thoughts together and consider the possibility that you might have something to learn. So just, just slow down.
0: Okay. And I'll, I'll say one more thing on it. Um, pause. So along the lines of slow down. But pause and ask yourself, A... Am I having the conversations? And B, when I get ready to have a conversation with someone, why? Am I having the conversation to hear, to learn, to be receptive to open mind because I'm trying to be open-minded? Or am I having the conversation because I want to prove them wrong? Because I want to debate. I don't want to grow. So that's all. Thank you all again. Thanks,
2: everybody. Yeah, thank, thank you. you.